This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. I'm Brina Garen, and you're listening to Hex Positive. Welcome, witches. This is episode four of Hex Positive. I'm your host, Brina Garen, and today we'll be diving into a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, advice for beginner witches. Now, I've been at this a long time, right around 15 years. I know in the grand scheme of things, 15 years is nothing, but still. Uh, I have a couple students now. I talk to a lot of witches online of all different experience levels, and the most frequent question that I get in my inbox is still, do you have any advice for beginner witches? Now, all of us with some level of life experience have little tidbits of advice to offer to the ones coming up. You know, the, the ones who are now walking the roads that we've already traveled slash tripped over. Uh, I've put most of mine uh, into my blog and into the books I've published. Like I said in episode one, I get a fair amount of feedback on my books, like where was this when I was starting out? And that's because so much of the content that I put in was just all the information and advice I wish somebody had given me when I was starting out as a witch. Like, basic common sense kind of stuff before any religion or dogma or spiritual matters just very practical here's how you start gathering supplies here's how to work safely with candles and fire magic here's some basic charms here's how to find good resources uh, here's how to do your homework so you can function in the community without coming off like a self-righteous dillweed that last one is more important than you'd think. Uh, so we're diving back into Grove Daughter Witchery today uh, because the biggest portion of advice I have for beginner witches and indeed for most witches is in that book. I'll be uh, reading through the chapter entitled Advice for Beginner Witches plus Magical Sa uh, Flame and Fire Safety because that is important and I'll be expanding on the text as we go. Now, the book was only published back in 2017. It is 2020 at the time of this episode's recording, but even then, in just a few short years, I've still learned more things. I, I've never stopped learning. I'm never gonna stop learning. It's vital that you never stop learning or think you're done learning as a witch, which leads us neatly into lesson number one. The best thing to do when you're first starting out is research. 
look into the different philosophies and religions under the pagan umbrella if that's your fancy. Talk to witches online or in person if you're able and get a first-hand account of their practices if they'll allow it. Some like to talk about it, some don't. Uh, it really helps though to have multiple perspectives when you're deciding how to start out and even more so as you go on. It gives you more feedback and that broader worldview that allows you to put what you learn into more of a community context. Uh, read blogs and articles and field guides about herbs and trees, anything you can get your hands on. Gain an understanding of basic biology, chemistry, physics. Develop a base of practical knowledge in addition to magical theory and spells. It doesn't have to be encyclopedic. You just need a basic understanding of how things work in the physical sphere in order to work more effectively in the metaphysical one. Uh, some suggested topics include botany, herbology, geology, basic chemistry, basic physics, world religions, and world history. I know that sounds like a lot. I know it sounds like an entire college course's worth of study, but it really helps to have that background knowledge when you're putting your spells together and when you're working on building your craft. If you're working with plants, you need to know what's safe and what isn't, how to identify herbs and flowers, how to grow them if that's what you decide you want to do, and so on. If you're working with stones and crystals, you need to know how to identify those, what their properties are, how to care for them, and so on. Uh, if you're working with chemicals or making potions, you need to know how to handle uh, various substances safely, what you can mix together, what you should never mix together, and how those reactions work. And because there's a lot of conflicting information out there, you really, really, really need to learn your history and from practical academic sources. Again, context. You'll hear me use that word over and over and over again because context is vital. It's the frame that gives everything else meaning. So also discover why there is no such thing as quote-unquote black magic and why there are some words including a certain word beginning with G that people use when they mean boho or free-spirited but which is actually a racist slur. Uh, other things that get thrown around a lot like totem, spirit animal, smudging, chakra, karma, so on and so forth. All things which you should never use improperly again. Uh, learn about cultural appropriation and why you should never ever do it. Uh, become aware of the social issues facing the pagan community. Make yourself socially aware and at least make an effort to be socially responsible. Now, recognizing cultural appropriation isn't always easy. It comes in a lot of forms, a good deal of it looks and sounds great on the surface, and unfortunately it's worked its way pretty deeply into the fabric of the pagan community in some places. So how do we recognize and more importantly avoid cultural appropriation? 
The short answer is if it's from an indigenous culture or a POC culture, if it's something that's endemic to that culture, or if it's something that requires some sort of initiation into a set of mysteries or sacred practices, you probably shouldn't touch it unless you are also a part of that culture or that community, or you've been invited into it by the people who are already there. Because let's face it, white people steal things from these cultures all the time in the name of entertainment or fetishized spirituality or whatever. And I am saying this fully aware that I am a white people and that I have been guilty of this in the past uh, when I didn't know better and a little bit when I should have, uh, which is so which is why it's it's so important to me now, why I'm so adamant about making sure the content I put out warns against this kind of behavior. And it's not even important that I'm saying it. It's not my voice you need to listen to on the topic of cultural appropriation. It's the voices of the people whose cultures are being appropriated. This is just me reminding you to listen. It should be mentioned that although we're responsible for most of this problem, white people aren't the only ones who are capable of cultural appropriation. This is something that every witch should be taking care to avoid. Modern paganism has a lot of casual appropriation that gets mixed into things because of the prevalence of certain limited viewpoints, and the unfortunate amount of colonialism and imperialism that permeate Western thinking. And it's just something we should all be aware of. Uh, regarding social issues, the witchcraft community is full of them. It has gender discrimination, it has body shaming, queer phobia, predatory behavior, scammers, racism, classism, elitism, you name it. Bigotry exists here just like everywhere else. Unfortunately, we're not so enlightened that we're immune to these issues. So when you're learning, you just have to be aware of these things. Be on the lookout for them and just kind of be careful where you're putting your feet, you know? Make sure that whatever issues you run into, that you're not feeding into them. You don't necessarily have to try and solve everything. You don't have to be some sort of perfect model citizen. Just be aware of things, be responsible, and do your best not to become part of the problem. Anyway, moving on. Learn about yourself. Discover what speaks to you. Develop your own set of beliefs, your own set of practices understand and accept that these can and will change as you continue to learn. Understand that witchcraft is a practice, not a religion, but that you can apply religion to it if that is your wish. If you find a particular path or existing spirituality that appeals to you, explore that, learn about it, Maybe find a mentor or at least ask someone in that part of co that community what it's like. And make sure that it's someone you can trust to give you good information and also not take advantage of you. Uh, fact checking and listening to your gut will be your allies here. Sometimes it helps to explore 
a pre-established tradition in order to figure out what does and doesn't work for you. And also just to give yourself somewhere to start. Uh, just be aware of that cultural appropriation we mentioned and try not to succumb to the temptation of, ooh, this looks shiny and yon random new age person said it's cool, so I'm just gonna take this. You can patchwork your practice in as much as having a lot of sources of inspiration goes. Witchy inspo is a thing and it's a lot of fun, so that's completely fine. Just watch your sources on it. And it's important to know, you know, what can and cannot be freely adopted and used by everyone. Uh, all this being said, don't be too hard on yourself. <laughs> and also, uh, don't feel like you have to rush into things. If you can't find a path that speaks to you, you don't have to decide on one right away. If you can't find spells that appeal to you, or you don't feel confident casting them right away, it's perfectly all right to wait. You can go for ages, months, years, without casting a single spell and still be a perfectly valid witch. The quest for and acquisition of knowledge is a huge part of witchcraft, and studying definitely counts as practicing, even if you have to wait months or years to put it into use. Uh, this especially applies if you're living in a situation where you can't practice openly. I had to deal with that when I first started. I have some fun stories about it to share some other time, uh, including doing all my witchcraft in a friend's basement. Oh yeah. Uh, be aware when you look for book sources that a lot of authors in modern pagan literature are coming from a Wiccan or a neo-pagan viewpoint. This is not necessarily a bad thing, but it's important to know and it's important to read critically. Uh, Wicca is a fine way of doing things, but it is not the only way, nor is it the default for witchy practices. Oh, hi, Penny. <laughs> Sorry, cat on desk. And remember, not all witches follow that good old Wiccan read. Uh, if you're not a Wiccan and you don't wish to, then you don't have to. Simple as that, like we talked about in episode three. Uh, also, don't make the mistake of assuming that anything that sounds Wiccan is Wiccan. A lot of Wiccan practices were adapted from various types of traditional witchcraft, which is currently getting a big revival. So there's definitely a good deal of overlap. It can be hard to tell where the differentiation lies if you're just seeing like a mention of a certain practice in a blog post or something um, in regards to deities or circle casting or holidays or what have you. Um, but books on Wicca versus traditional witchcraft will generally tell you up front uh, which one they're on about. They're usually pretty cool like that. Uh, this is why I suggest reading so much because again, context, uh, more sources will give you a clearer picture. And speaking of not finding your path right away, if you're an agnostic 
or an atheist, or if you're just not sure if you want to involve religion or deities with your craft, you've got options. Believe me, you've got options. There are paths for these beliefs and lack thereof, and there's plenty of room in the community for witches who want to keep their craft and their spirituality somewhat separate. I consider myself a secular witch. I have patron deities, as I've mentioned before, but I don't generally involve them with my day-to-day -day craft. I handle that myself, and there's no religious significance to it. Uh, secular witchcraft is a complicated subject, and I'm definitely going to spend some time delving into that in the future, uh, because it's kind of misunderstood as to what it is and what it isn't. Uh, for now, just understand that secular witchcraft in general is witchcraft without religion attached to it. Remember when I mentioned I see witchcraft as a craft? That's sort of the gist of it right there. There's a lot more to it than that, and there's different kinds of secular witchcraft, but we're going to come back to that subject in a future episode. Uh, if you happen to read something that makes you uncomfortable or that doesn't quite jive with your practical knowledge, be sure to double check the author's claims, particularly where history is concerned. Look for those works cited pages. Uh, some pagan authors are fond of misinterpreting history to suit their own narratives and of presenting their own opinions as fact without saying so. Uh, this is where critical thinking and practical research come in so handy. Respect your fellow practitioners, no matter what path or tradition they belong to, no matter what deities they do or do not follow, no matter what practices they may or may not utilize. That includes the Wiccans, the non-Wiccans, the Satanists, the Luciferians, the Lokians, the Christo-Pagans, the Jewish witches, the secular witches, the atheists, the polytheists, the traditionalists, the eclectics, the pop culture pagans, everyone. Do not knock it just because you don't understand it. I know it can be very tempting to throw certain traditions under the bus, especially when others around you are doing it, or if you run into an example of someone from that tradition who happens to be really unpleasant, but just do your best not to fall into that way of thinking. You don't have to subscribe to their way of doing things. You just kind of have to live and let live most of the time. And that means refraining from Christian bashing as well. If you have beef with the church, that's your business. Gods know I did back in the day and still do to some extent. But just don't go tarring everybody with that same brush. And again, like I mentioned in episode three, fundamentalists are really freaking annoying, even when they're pagans. But as long as they're not actively hurting anyone or trying to induct you into a cult, just leave them alone as well. The only ones that we wholesale flip the bird to are the Nazis and white supremacists trying to co-opt pagan symbols and traditions or trying to use pagan rhetoric to excuse their hate. They can fuck right off. This witch hexes Nazis. Understand that respecting your fellow practitioners also means you should be aware of and make an effort not to steal from closed religions or initiatory traditions, that cultural appropriation I mentioned before. 
I know that part sounds complicated, and believe me, it can be hard to know where the line is. Fortunately, there's an easy way to find out whether something is free for universal use or not. Find someone who is an authority or an elder in that tradition and ask them. Then respect that answer, whatever it may be. When in doubt, don't do the thing. Expect that as a new practitioner, you're going to make mistakes. And you might catch some flack for it from your peers. Don't take it personally. Consider your mistakes to be valuable learning opportunities. If you're in the wrong and an apology is called for, make one and learn from that too. We can learn just as much, if not more, from our mistakes and our failures as we do from our successes. There is no one right way of being a witch or practicing witchcraft. As far as I'm concerned, there are only three hard and fast rules. One, be respectful of the beliefs and practices of others, even when you don't agree with them, and that includes not forcing your beliefs on others. Two, never stop learning. Always seek more knowledge and experience than you had yesterday. There will always be more to discover. That's really half the fun. And rule number three, don't be a jerk, also known as Wheaton's Law. Beyond that, everything else is guidelines and personal ethics. Keep in mind that this is my own view on witchcraft in a very general and non-religious sense. Every tradition has their own way of doing things and may require or forbid certain things that are contradicted by my personal advice and the contents of my books and also this podcast. Should such a situation arise during your exploration of witchcraft, the choice of what is best and what is right falls to you and you alone. I firmly recommend seeking out an experienced practitioner in whichever path that catches your interest in order to obtain clear and reliable information so that your decisions may be as well informed as possible. You don't have to study every single subject or master every skill there is in order to be a real or proper witch. If you're not comfortable learning about something, if you don't see a use for it, or if it just doesn't appeal to you, you can leave it alone. Me, for example, I'm not great at divination. Can't memorize tarot card meanings for love or money. I have my own methods that work for me, but I don't find a need for much divination in my practice. And I avoid most spirit work like the literal plague. And if you're suddenly picturing a witch in a medical mask and gloves aiming a spray bottle of disinfectant at a ghost, you've got the idea. So yeah, at least try to look into things. But if a cursory glance doesn't catch your attention, you can leave it be or come back to it later. And if certain subjects hold your attention better than others, it's okay to focus on them. Every witch has a specialty, no matter how small. We'll be back with more Hex Positive after this brief sponsored break. This episode of Hex Positive is brought to you by Becathist.com. We've all heard witches love jars, but the one thing we might love more than a well-turned glass vessel is a beautifully presented shiny rock. 
If you're a witch who makes use of stones and crystals in your practice, or if you're simply in love with these little treasures from the earth, you'll want to check out Becathist.com. Becathist has been a supplier of quality stones, crystals, and handmade jewelry since 2013. She's got a brick-and-mortar shop in Big Bear, California, and everything in it is gorgeous. I have a number of pieces from Becathist's shop myself, and I absolutely love them. One of her palm stones, made of black moonstone, sits on my altar, and I wore one of her wire-wrapped pendants, a truly gorgeous malachite, as a bridal piece at my wedding. I can't recommend these wares highly enough. They're all absolutely beautiful, and they make perfect gifts for anyone in your life who loves crystals. Or, you know, for yourself. You've been working hard. You deserve something nice, too. Why not make it something special? Check out Beccathist.com, that's B-E-K-K-A-T-H-Y-S-T.com, and make sure you follow the shop on social media under the same name. Bring home a shiny new friend today. And now, back to the show. Discovering your area of expertise may not happen right away. Some specialties only come with time. There are three things you can do to help yourself along the way. One, explore. Read, network, talk to people, find out about all kinds of things you can do with magic. Find out what types of magic interest you. Find out which types of magic are appropriate for you to be practicing. Again, being careful not to take things from closed cultures or religion. I know I sound like a broken record. It's that much of a problem. Uh, Two, learn. Make a list of magical things that pique your interest. Study up on those things. Talk to people who include those things in their practices and see if they're willing to give you some advice or some pointers. Build up your knowledge base. And three, practice. If it holds your interest through all the studying, give it a try. Start with the basics and hone your skills. See if it feels right. If it does, keep at it. If not, move on to the next thing. And while you're practicing, remember that failure is going to be part of the experience. Your spells may not always work the way you want them to or at all. All that magic can do is increase the chances that things will go the way that you want them to. It's never a guarantee. But that doesn't mean you should get discouraged. It's all a part of the learning process. The world isn't going to end or blow up in your face if you get something wrong. You're not going to be hexed for life if you accidentally put the wrong ingredient into your spell. Even if you're casting baneful magic, if you're smart about it and remember to protect yourself, the chances of something going catastrophically wrong are... Well, okay, let's be honest, they exist, but most of the time they're really, really remote. Also... Document your progress just so you can see how far you've come since you've started and what you've learned along the way. Sometimes it feels like you haven't moved in ages with your practice or like you're stagnating or short on ideas or maybe you've just hit a slump. In those times, it really helps to be able to look back and be like, Wow, you know, look where I am now compared to this time last month or last year. Don't worry about comparing your practice to other practitioners. You will learn and grow at your own pace just like everyone else. 
we all mount our broomsticks one leg at a time. If you're going to work with plants, definitely get your hands on some medical books and field guides. It helps to be able to identify uh, the plants you're working with and also to be aware of any health risks associated with using or handling them. Uh, here are a few that I recommend for practical study. The Complete Guide to Herbal Medicines by Fetro and Avila. Rodale's Illustrated Encyclopedia of Herbs, of course, by Rodale Press, and the Western Medicinal Plants and Herbs book by Peterson Field Guides. Uh, if you don't happen to live in the northern or western part of the globe, uh, there should be field guides more relative to your particular area. Uh, admittedly, some of these titles are a little bit dated. The Fetro and Avila title was published back in 2000, but the information they provide can still help you build a good knowledge base for the safe handling of most of the plants you're likely to encounter in your practice. One last thing, family situations. While it's important to have pride in yourself and to not be ashamed of being a witch, it's also important to maintain your personal safety, much more important than being open with your practice. If you're in a situation where you honestly feel that you could be harmed in some way or evicted, heaven forbid, for openly practicing witchcraft, then either find a safe space somewhere else for your physical practices or restrict yourself to non-physical practices like meditation and studying or don't practice at all until you're in a place where it's safe to do so. I don't generally encourage lying outright but if lying, even by omission, is going to keep your skin whole, then please do it. The craft will still be there waiting when you come back to it in a safer place. I had to wait several years and move into my own home to be able to practice openly. And while it may not take that long for everyone, it was certainly worth the wait for me. You don't have to be out to be a witch. You don't have to wear a giant silver pentacle or dance under the light of the moon or shout it from the rooftops. Your craft is valid because you are valid. You are a real witch because you decided to be one. Please, please, please always put your personal safety and well-being first. I'm definitely going to come back to the idea of sort of witching from the broom closet in a future episode, I have lots more advice for that particular situation. So that's the basic general advice I would give to any witch just starting out in their practice. I might tailor things a bit to answer questions or in consideration for their personal situation, but that's the basic set. And hopefully I haven't just scared everyone off of becoming a witch in the first place. If you haven't run screaming yet, next comes the fire safety talk. You wouldn't think that witches would need a course in fire safety. 
you'd think that with all this wonderful talk of respecting and utilizing the strength of the elements, there would be some common sense measures to not burn down your ritual space. Well, you'd be surprised. The moment magic enters the conversation, some folks just clean forget that magical fire is still, you know, fire. And as an old friend once told me, rule one is fire burns, rule two is things that touch fire also burn. So with that in mind, let's move on to magical flame and fire safety. Fire is an important element in many traditions. It summons, it cleanses, it creates, it destroys, it inspires, it illuminates. And it can also cause a lot of problems if you're not careful with how you use it. When using open flames in your rituals or magical workings, always practice common sense fire safety. This includes removing unneeded flammable materials from the immediate area, ensuring proper ventilation for smoke and heat, using a fireproof surface such as cement or stone for hot elements like burning bowls, employing catch dishes for falling embers, dripping wax or hot coals, keeping water or a fire extinguisher within reach in case of accidents, fully extinguishing the flames and the embers when you're finished, and never leaving a burning or smoldering substance unattended. Still a glow, you don't go. And guess what, kids? That one applies directly to any spell or ritual where you're called upon to let a candle burn down completely. That means you're going to park your happy witchy behind right there to attend the flame until it goes out. None of this tripping on your merry way and leaving an open flame somewhere to set fire to God knows what. This is actually a huge problem in some rural areas, and I do recall an incident the year Grove Daughter was published involving brush fires being started by candles left unattended in the woods. Like, really, what did you think was going to happen to that candle you left burning in the middle of a clearing full of flammable material? Ugh. If for some reason you can't wait for long periods for candles to burn down, try using smaller candles. Chime candles and birthday candles come in just about any color you could want. They're pretty inexpensive, and they burn down in a relatively short period of time. And if there's an issue having open flame even for that long, maybe you might want to consider using symbolic flame instead, or choosing another method for your spell. Some fire magic gets worked in cauldrons or burning bowls. For practical and health-related purposes, it's best to take your burning bowl outside for anything longer than a five-second sustained burn. Smoke fills a room and a house much faster than you think it will. Nothing spoils a magical mood like burning embers on the carpet, setting off the smoke detector, or worse, setting off the sprinkler system. And that's saying nothing of the smell of burnt herbs that can saturate your entire home for days afterward. Take any allergic conditions of anyone involved, including passive ones within wafting range, into account before you begin. 
keep your pets away from the area. Not only are curious pets prone to knocking over candles and singeing noses and tails on open flame, but the smoke from incense or burning herbs can cause respiratory issues or settle on their skin and fur and make them sick when they lick themselves clean later on. If your furry friend does happen to come into more than incidental contact with the smoke, just give them a quick wipe with a damp washcloth to remove the residue. My kitty Havoc, for example, loves to sit in the window right next to my working altar. I try to shoo him off of it when I'm working fire magic or burning incense so that he doesn't breathe the smoke, but sometimes he just won't be budged. Uh, he and Penny are both proper witches' cats. They really like to be involved in whatever I'm doing. So if I'm working on the altar, he wants to be part of it. I always make sure I give him a quick washcloth bath after, which does not make him very happy, but it's certainly better than him getting sick. If you're going to be moving around with your burning object, uh, a smokestick or a candle or what have you, uh, make sure that you have a safe part to hold on to. Whether it's a handle or a jar or a bunch of stems, uh, make sure it's a safe distance from whatever bit of the thing is on fire. And if there's any danger of burning embers falling from whatever you're holding, make sure there's some kind of catch dish under it. One example that leaps to mind is having one of those pretty abalone shells, uh, those, those shell dishes under your smokestick. You can also use a saucer or a small bowl or a cup, and you can rest the smokestick inside and carry the dish if you need a hand free. Some traditions and devotional rituals call for some kind of perpetual flame, now, full disclosure, one of my patron deities is Brigid, both the goddess and the Irish saint, and one of her symbols is the perpetual flame. I've been to Kildare, I've seen the actual perpetual flame in the Hermitage. It was very beautiful and very, very moving. I love the idea of a perpetual flame as a devotional symbol. I love the idea of it but not so much the actual practice for home use. For safety reasons, the idea of a perpetual flame for devotional or magical purposes is unfortunately not all that realistic. It all goes back to the idea of what can happen to an unattended flame, no matter how stable and out of reach you may think it is. Fortunately, there are plenty of practical and much safer alternatives. The easiest solution is to use one of those flameless LED candles. They're battery operated, they come in all sorts of colors, and they flicker and glow just like real candles, but without the open flame. Some models are even scented if that's something you enjoy. LED candles are available in pretty much any standard candle type. Uh, pillars and tea lights are the most popular and probably the easiest to find. Tapers are often out around Halloween and the winter holiday season too. You can also find LED candles that change color. There are models you can program with your phone for whatever kind of mood you want to set. 
honestly, sometimes I think I'd rather have that than open flame just for the aesthetic and the no muss, no fuss aspect of it. I've recommended LED candles in the past to witches who don't wish to use fire in their practices but still want light or who are in situations where they can't light a candle for their castings but they still want the symbolism or who just want the ambiance of flickering candlelight without the smoke or the heat or the hassle. Uh, maybe you live in a dorm where open flame candles aren't allowed. Maybe you live in a home where you need to hide your practice. Maybe you live with someone who's allergic to candle scents or smoke. Maybe you have kids or critters who tend to knock things over. Or your home just isn't safe to have candles in for some reason. Or maybe you're just really, really busy. Whatever the reason, if you're worried about open flame, definitely give LED candles a try. So that's your witchy fire safety lesson. Basically, it's just making sure you follow common sense when handling anything that produces fire or smoke. In all things, practice safety and common sense before any kind of symbolism or aesthetic. Having that ritual space lit by dozens of flickering candles with wax stalactites hanging everywhere is nice and all, but it's way more important to not burn down your house. So, safety first. And that's our episode for this month. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to have this kind of advice in your library, you can find Grove Daughter Witchery Practical Spellcraft, along with both of my other titles, over on Amazon. I'll include a link in the show notes. I will definitely be returning to the topic of witchy advice in future episodes, uh, partly because I love being an auntie and partly because there's always way more to cover. So look for that in the future. Next time, we're going to have a special treat. Episode five will feature our very first guest host, the illustrious Trey Dorn, from our sibling show, BS Free Witchcraft, will be joining me for a discussion on why witches should still believe in science. You'd think that'd be common sense too, but it's not. I have a feeling there will be some tea to spill, and believe me, you'll want to be in the splash zone. So tune in next month for a BS Free Hex Positive crossover. I'm really looking forward to this one. So once more, I'm your host, Brina Garen, reminding you to stay safe, wash your hands, and always practice safe hex. Hex Positive is a proud member of the Nerd and Tie Podcast Network. Check out everything they have to offer, including our sibling podcast, BS Free Witchcraft, over at nerdandtie.com. Intro and outro music by Kevin McLeod. For all the latest updates, follow at hex underscore podcast on Twitter. You can also follow me at at Brina Garen on Twitter and Instagram. For more information on my books, you can check out my WordPress and my Amazon author page. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash Stay safe, wash your hands, and remember, always practice safe hacks.